0: Hi, it's a Sunday, and um, I'll tell you the truth, it's, it's strange, I was supposed to go, I'm going to do a talk today, a little, uh, slightly unusual, in honor of the Stefanski wedding, they're making a chasan right now as I speak, in uh, New York, in Passaic. and Passaic, I was supposed to go, maybe hear my voice, I came down with Corona, can you believe it, yesterday, Friday in, in Chavez, I, can, I got COVID, I got tested, so I was unable to go, I guess the good Lord doesn't want so, uh, in, in, um, but I'll do this in honor of the, uh, the wedding of, uh, of the two children, it's Asher it's and it's, uh, it's a, it's a Taiba, same name as my wife, uh, so I hope to be able to build it by Snembe uh, We just, had, <clears throat> this just uh, came in my mind as I was writing this, I'm actually preparing to do a lecture series, as I do every year in Baltimore here, um, on court Jews, in Spain especially, during the three weeks, first starting with uh, Chazdeb and Shepard and moving on. And I just sat down now to write a few preliminary remarks, and it just occurred to me, it's a very interesting connection with Pashas Korach, so I'm going to give a uh, historical reverie, let's put it that way consideration, of Korach and Moshe, because I know that there's a story of Korach, I get that, and I know what happened, and how Korach got swallowed up by the ground, and, you know, I, like, I, I can read too. but, you know, when you see something, in the Torah, it's there for a reason, and sometimes multiple reasons, and I'm sure all the time, and I'll tell you where I'm going with this, you know, Korach is going to sound funny, but once I was thinking about the Middle Ages, and really Jewish history down the centuries, the way it evolved, there have always been two leadership types. Moshe and Karach. I mean, I'm not, I'm being serious. Specifically, especially when the Jews were in Gullus. So here I was thinking about Spain and Europe and so forth in the Middle Ages and afterwards, and down till today if you want to get down to it, but um, wherever Jews lived always, as you know, they were minorities, helpless minorities. We shortly know that, and if the Jews survived as they did for so many centuries, under Christian rule and under Muslim rule, you know that's a nace. As we said a hundred times. But what were the mechanics of that survival? how did that work out, of a pile? So, um, if you think about it, if you're a minority and a, and a not a popular one. Then, what's what you need above all is law and order. Those you, you need to you shouldn't be torn to bits by your neighbors. If there's nothing to stop them, chances are they'll do it. If the religion you practice is a different religion, the majority religion, it's a big chances that you'll that they'll do it. So, how do you stop that? So, the answer is the Jews can only survive if the government. The people who control the police and the army, as we call it nowadays, the police and the military, prevent people from doing physical harm to the Jews. That comes number one. All the rest of it is number two, three, four, and and all the way down to 10,000. But number one, above all, you can't live if you can't live. Number one, you need, on a day-by-day basis, physical security. If you want to go a little bit beyond that, and you're Jewish, and your religion matters, you need religious security. What's to stop people from burning down the shoal, trashing the cemetery, you know, breaking windows and things like that? You can't live in a place unless there's some kind of way of enforcing, ensuring, guaranteeing your personal, you know, uh, 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 persons and property. That's the sine qua non. You You can't do without it. So the Jews lived for so long, as you know, among the Christians, among the Muslims. Uh, The court Jews is a phenomenon. They're both. Uh, How did that work? In other words, if Jews, let, let me, let me do the Muslim one. Maybe I'll do the Christian one later. I'll see. Let's do the Muslim one. When the Islamic religion began in the 600s, in the 7th century, the Jews were already part of the furniture of the Middle East. They're already there, and for religious internal reasons, the Islamic religion did not hold that you're mahuyev to force the Jews to change their religion or, or, or kill them. That was just a big piece of Mozzle for the Jews. okay? I'm talking about what Muhammad writes in the Quran so therefore it wasn't a religious imperative of the conquerors of the Muslim conquerors to kill the Jews or force them to convert. shine. But then, how does that work on a Lamaisa Dika basis? All throughout the great Arab world, which is still there today, and beyond even the Muslim world, there were already Jewish communities at the time the Islamic religion began, and new ones formed over the centuries. You know, new Jewish communities popped up, certainly important ones in the 700s, the 800s, the 900s, the 1000s, the 1100s, and so forth, based on economics. Okay? usually around some kind of a port, uh, either on on the Mediterranean Sea or a place on a river or something like that because that's the easiest way to run commerce for various reasons, okay? So if you're there and you're Jewish, how does that work, Lamaisa? Well, the Jews always were not individual citizens because they weren't citizens. First of all, it's taken for granted that if you're Jewish, you're not going to have equal rights because the state is Muslim. Or in Europe, the state was Christian. So the only rights, if there are any at all, are for members of that religion. We have the same thing. If it was a Torah a government, uh, you, you, the only full full equality would be for Jews. So, you know, and the same way we would have a distinction. Is is a Ger, a Ger Toshov, you know what I mean? So the Muslim religion and the uh, Christian religion each had their own way of uh, judging, evaluating Judaism from their own personal perspective. Okay. Now, where am I going with this? If you're Jewish, you live with other Jews, you're part of a community, you're going to be treated by the host society as a member of the community. Um, The the, community is located in a place, let's say in a city, for example. Um, The city's rove is, is going to be Goyim. Okay. So what's to stop the Goyim from physically harming the Jews? Maybe don't feel like doing it on Monday, but next Monday they will, or Tuesday. The answer is that the rulers of the city, the people who control the military and the police, so that's what it boils down to, have to be willing to say, you can't hurt the Jews, and they have to back that up with force. If anybody does hurt the Jews, they'll get punished. One way or another. This is ABCs of survival of a minority. Now, the Jews, um, wherever they were, therefore were compelled by circumstances to have somebody in the Jewish community at least, or at least or a group who established some kind of relationship with the people in charge of the police and the military. Whoever were the top dogs, Whoever controlled the power. Because the Jews don't have any. So they got to have the backing, the support, at least a basic level, meaning of life and, and limb and property, from whoever does have it in that society. So if you lived in Morocco or Algeria or Egypt or Syria or Baghdad or any of these places, it's not enough to say you're living there, and it's not enough to say that the government doesn't go out and try to forcibly convert you, your basic personal security requires that somebody in the community has some kind of a hookup system or some kind of a relationship system, um, with 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 the powerful people outside. And the only ones that really count are the ones who have influence and control, the police and the military. Okay? This is like ABCs that you, you gotta learn. Now think, listen closely what I'm about to say. If everybody in the town was in Kolel, then it wouldn't happen. Because all these guys are learning all day long. They have no contact with the guy, no, no substantial contact. And consequently, there, there's no nothing by way of uh, lobbying pressure or things like that that would move a Gentile ruler, the guy in charge of the police and the military, to move himself to help the Jews. I mean, may, let's put it this way. In general terms, yes, because the policy of the government in general, like in the Arab Empire, the policy of the imperial government was, you know, to give the Jews basic security and all that. But if I'm the local guy in charge the place of Cairo or Oran or something like that, what the heck, you know? Let's say it's a Muslim holiday, let them go and have some fun and smash up the Jewish things and steal and whatever. Or let's say the Jews have money lenders and everybody owes them money and now they want to cancel all the debts and let's just smash all the Jewish property or kill the guys and then nobody will owe money anymore. You know, things like that, which happen all the time. So if you don't have some active relationship, active relationship with the power brokers of the community, um, then you're not going to survive. Because like I said before, it's not going to be this Monday, it's going to be next Monday or the Monday after that, or the Tuesday or the Wednesday. It's going to happen and it won't take a long time. Right? It will not take a long time. Have you Boy, were they right about that one. So, what kind of Jews have relationships with important and powerful Goyim? And what is the nature of that relationship? They didn't go to the same baseball game, not playing polo together, and not at a, at a poker game, although such a thing is, that, believe it or not, conceivable, but not really. They didn't belong to the same club, you know what I'm saying? You know, they're, they're not Masons. <laughs> so, on what basis would you have it? There are two that I can think of, but let me say right off the bat, it's not going to be the rabbi, with the, with the rarest of exceptions. It's not going to be the rabbi. The rabbi is learning. And the rabbi doesn't necessarily have the necessary political skills to get in tight with the top guy in that locale. I mean, if he's smart, he won't rock the boat. I'm not talking somebody, rabbi, make trouble. Is a person, if he's smart, will never make trouble, ever. Right? You know, uh, what's the expression? Uh, you know, and all that. But he's not going to be the type of guy to hang around the pasha, the governor of the, the city, the officer and the police, the military, the other guys like that, maybe some big mouths in town who it's good to stay on their good side. And so it's usually going to devolve, at least as I'm sitting here tonight, on one of two types. The first type is Korach. I'm serious. You know, Korach, at least in Jewish lore, not in the Chumash, but in Chazal, Korach was the epitome of the rich Jew. Now, I know the story in the desert and all that, like I said before, I can read too. But if you're talking about Korach as a type, Jewish, and I don't mean that Korach in a bad way necessarily, the Jewish religion has always had, and still does, um, the Korach type. The Jew who is a leader, and is powerful, and who ascribes for power, based on his wealth. Not necessarily on the learning, not necessarily in being a tzaddik, but in being good in business, as we would say today. This would be the Karek that we assume didn't simply hit the jackpot, which is one way they understand how Karek got rich, he discovered treasures. But the other way is Karek was a wheeler-dealer, and let's say in an honest way, he was just good in business. Right, I didn't say cheat anybody. It's good in business. I told you before when when Yistro shows up right after they cross the Red Sea, Jews are already quarreling, quarreling in in um, you know Chosh Mishma stuff. Isn't that true? Correct, isn't that right? And so the result is that we have a funny you know an interesting situation. Okay, we have an interesting situation. Now, throughout history, wherever there was a Jewish community. One guy, or type of guys, that would have shayiches, what the guy would be the wealthy. First of all, in order to do business, by definition in those days, you have to know, you know, who's who and what the power structure is in the city, because there are all kinds of rules and regulations regarding commerce, and you might need some extra favors, I mean, legitimate favors. You might also need some illegitimate favors. Uh, there are a lot of situations where you have new commercial situations and you need the backing of the local authorities. At the very least, you need people who will um, guarantee that your warehouses won't be broken into, right? Things like that. And so, without which, you can't run a business. And the intelligent rulers of the cities understood this. So if I was a Korok type, and I was living in, Kairuan, in Cairo, in Cairo, and Damascus, in Aleppo, in Mosul, and Baghdad, and wherever, Morocco. So, part of my time I spent in business, in other words, import-export, running the caravans and all that kind of business. But in a good portion of my time, I'm going to spend cultivating relationships with the powerful Goyim, in the Muslim world with the powerful Muslims. Especially the people in power, who control the uh, the the instruments of power, the military and the, and and the uh, police. Doesn't have to be a general if you have a powerful civilian governor, that works too. But you know, it is what it is. And so, whereas Korach didn't work as a leader in the desert because the Jews had no need for all of what I'm talking about. So Korach was a thousand or two thousand years ahead of his time. Later in Jewish history. In Poland and everywhere, the Jewish communities, whether they liked it or not, had to depend on Korach, who was the richest guy in town, each town according to its level, so it could be a small village, it'd be the the the, the 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 richest Jew in the village, even though it'd be poor by someone else. Where it's a bigger city, it'd be a wealthier Jew. And the only way you could get wealthy was either through money lending, which was not often as you think, but it was more often the commerce. You understand? Bringing in goods, sending out goods. That way you cause employment. You get in the good side of the local government and the Goyim. And so if the Jewish community needs something, they don't go to the rabbi and say, hey, we need to do this and this and this. Will you talk to the Goyim for you, for us? They may do that, but then the rabbi will turn around right away and go to the local Korach, who may be an Amarit's Gomer. Could be. Or not and say, listen, you talk to this prince and so forth, and you know, we need help for an Erev. And the Korach might say, don't go to him this week, or the next two weeks. He just gets insulted by somebody, he's in a bad mood, I know the guy, wait till July, wait till August. I know the guy, and take it from me. And the rabbi was like this, okay, listen, there's no other choice, you know better than I do. Right? This is not the skill of a Maggid shir. This is not the skill of a Dayan or a Maggid. You get what I'm saying? This is the skill of somebody who knows how to maintain um, constructive relationships with Goyim. Considering that the Jews are totally under the Goyim's control and that the only, you know, pressure the Jews can exert is an appeal to the self-interest of the Goyim. So if the guy says, listen, we need an of It'll make life easier for the Jews. That'll make, you know, more Jewish businessmen move here. I don't know, whatever kind of argument you want to make. And therefore be good for you, because the taxes will rise. When you say the taxes rise, ding, ding, ding. Now you're talking his language. You see? Now, it could be that the type of skills that it takes to become a Korach are not nice ones. Uh, you know, ruthless businessman, as they say. What does it take to claw your way to the top? Not necessarily that you're the nicest person. The opposite. That's got nothing to do with what I just said. Meaning, but if you need a Erev, or you need help with some Jew that got arrested, or you need some 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 regulation fixed, or some guy with uh, trouble with the courts, you got to go to this korach, and maybe he's obnoxious and maybe he isn't. There's no choice. You got to kiss up to him, and so the Jewish communities always had not the reign of Moses, but the reign of Korach. It's just interesting. Now, I'm oversimplifying it. The reign of Moses was represented by the rabbi and the, you know, that kind of thing. And they represent the voice of the law. And in the Chumash, when it was a battle between Korach and Moshe, Moshe won. But in, outside the Chumash, when it was a battle between Korach and Moshe, usually Korach won. And I've done these podcasts and many times. There were rabbis who came to towns, and they got in an argument one way or another, clashed with the Korachs. And I'm not saying that the rabbi was wrong. For example, the Malbim, you know, I'm not saying he's wrong. The opposite, I'm sure he was on the right, on the side <coughs> of right and good, of light and yashrus. It don't mean nothing. Why? Because the Korach is the one who has the power, and to be perfectly honest, the community needs the Korach more than they need the Malbim, more than they need the Moshe. That's the way it goes. Because they live in a geisha world, and the only people that can get things done with the Goyim, they'll respect, are, are, are the Korachs. Um, therefore, when this situation, you know, reached its fullest development, you had what way call the Court Jew. Meaning, that to be somebody who is a result of of his business connections, his wealth, and all the rest of it. See, money gives you a certain power. Maybe. What do I mean maybe? If you live in a very stable country like America, so there's a, a regular government. If you got the money, you're going to keep it. If you live in an unstable country, like in Middle Ages, if if you're Jewish and you have a lot of money, one day they could turn around and say like this, easy convert right now or we'll kill you and take away all your money, or we'll will take away all your money. You know what I mean? You never know. So, it was, you know, it was tricky to have it and not flaunt it. But on the other hand, Jews can't help flaunting it. That's, that's our history, unfortunately. And, um, you know, the results were what they were. But the Korach presence is, you know, the, the thing without which the community cannot survive. So I'm saying something interesting. A community could survive, at least physically. Without a rabbi, without a Moshe. The community cannot, Lemaisa, survive without a Korach. Now, I don't know how you tie that in for purposes of a dry Torah. Korach HaMoshe, I'm not into that right now. I'm talking history now. And wherever there were Jewish communities, and it's, it's probably still do, true today, really, really, because even in modern democratic countries, like in America, for example, the ones who have the influence are the ones who give a lot of money to the politicians. So it's it's not quite the same way, but it but it really is. So in America, we also have a whole Korach situation. The only thing is, if the guy's from... This is their Aguda model, you know. You get the Korach and mix them together with the Moshe. They'll use the connections and the power that they have with the elected officials on behalf of Tordicah causes. Let's call it that. It's it's good when it happens. It's, it's, it's not a smooth business at all. So it's fascinating that you have this um, phenomenon of Korach, and not in a bad way, necessarily, you see, just in a realistic way, because, you know, the U.S. government, the British government, and all that, the politicians, they're not really going to be interested if I bring to them some big zodiac you know, who learns all day or something like that, and he'll say, do this. On the other hand, if I bring to them some guy who is not necessarily the firmest guy ran down the block, and maybe, I don't know, he does this, he does that, but as soon as the politician see him, they say, oh, here's my friend Sam, here's my friend Samantha, da-da-da, and then, you know, you'll get them to vote for what you want them to vote for. Something along those lines. And that's in modern democratic countries. In the old days, there was nothing to talk about. The ruler, the king, the queen, all that, they're not interested in anybody that doesn't have the money. So they're not interested in the Moshe's, they're interested in the Korach's. Um, that's right, interested in the Korach's. There was an alternative model, which is an interesting one in the Middle Ages, and today is slightly different, and that is not the Korach, but the MD, the doctor, so you talk about Shab, Chazib and Shaprut and people like that. That's an interest. That's That's a Jew who by virtue of medical knowledge was able to enter into the inner circle of the powerful person and gain influence by virtue of establishing a personal relationship. Not dependent on money, but dependent on medicine and medical skill, which was a science that they needed throughout history. That you find sometimes... That, you know, uh, and, and which is interesting that someone would be a, a doctor or whatever, and the king or the governor or the police chief or the army officer or the police guy, you know, would, would need medical help. And he knows that this guy, you know, can provide it. And if the doctor knows how to play the cards right, not be too much this way, not be too much that way, you know, not be too forward, not to be. You know, uh, too modest, not to be too immodest. It's a tightrope, right? Or as they say, dancing on eggs. It's a tightrope. But we find in history that there were Jews who who became, you know, important, the most important of the Jews, um, by virtue of their skill, medical skill specifically. And there's a line of these court Jews. So it's it's not a matter that they had money. I'm sure they made good money in those days, but not the not the big, big, big money, not like the Koros. But they somehow or other were able to ingratiate themselves with the uh, the big shots. The Rambam was like that. He's one of them. He's most famous. You know, he's one of them. But there were others, right? The Rambam wasn't exactly what you call a court Jew, but by the end of his life, he kind of was. That's what he kind of evolved into, which is why the Rambam in the last years of his life did not um, write Annie's farm, which is a loss for the rest of us, as we all know. But the Rambam writes that famous letter to a guy who wants to visit him. He I got no time. I'm too busy handling the VIPs. And believe me, the Rambam would have preferred to finish that last book or two or three or four or five that he planned to execute. And he, he could have done it, obviously. You don't need me to tell you that. But he felt that taking care of his relationships with the powerful Goyim, at the end of his life, he was even involved with the king, with the son of Saladin. But before that, he was with the prime minister and other people like that. You help throw him more that way, at least in his time and place, that you do by writing another safer... It's it's an interesting way of looking at things, and it's the other way that I can think of. Um, in modern times, things are more complex. We have, you know, uh, ever since the rise of modernity, the notion of the modern democracy, constitutional government, you know, uh, uh, Jews can vote, can run for office. So you might have a, a Jewish politician, maybe, Jewish politician um, who may have a relationship with the people in power structures. So, uh, you know, they might want to go to a Jewish congressman if he's got pull in this country or a senator, you know, to help out on some issue, which is totally fine. Uh, it's legal. So that's a, 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 that's a different model, but that only arose in the modern time, the last 200 years or so. When you actually, Jews as number one participants in political system and then, you know, players in the political system. I always say when the Jews got their civil rights, especially in Europe, the guy expected that they would be passive. They didn't think the Jews would be active. The Jews were expected to be consumers of Geisha cultures, not producers. And they were expected to be passive participants, just voting in the political process, not becoming active and running for office. But it happened. And, you know, already in the 19th century, there were Jews who were up, up to close to prime minister in, in many, in, in not many, in some countries. So once you had like this, that's a different mode of, of uh, power. But it all boils down to the same thing. Do you have the people who have the authorized, um, you know, force in the society? Do you have them on your side that they'll protect you against violence? If you do, you're in business. If you don't, you're not in business. Um, I just want to make the... So, so Korach and Moshe is not just a Parsha in Bamidbar. It's not just a story that happened, you know, long ago, which is a very interesting story psychologically, in terms of politics and all that. I've done those when I've discussed the, uh, you know, Parsha Week and all that. But just in history, the, you know, don't knock Korach so much because... Very often in Jewish history, you had to fall back on Korachs. Not very often. I mean, that, that was the regular. Uh, when you didn't have Korachs, it was unusual. The kings, the queens, the popes, and all the others who knew and had any favoritism at all for Jews down the many centuries, either they were tied up with some Korach or two, or they had a Jewish doctor. At least that's all I can think of. Right away. As I'm sitting here, I can't think of any other scenario. And that, I think is worthy of note. So I just threw this out there today uh, in honor of the uh, Stefanski family. list of Mazel on the wedding of their son and just build a and be Yisrael.